Most of us have heard models for how to solve problems, but what if the problem you're handling isn't one anyone's ever seen before? Or maybe you don't even know what problem you're trying to solve. On today's episode, the mindset and strategy you need to solve really big problems. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 292. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. So glad to have you. Today, a conversation that all of us need to deal with, not even deal with, but really have a good framework for handling well as leaders, which is how to solve a really big problem. Sometimes the big problems that are in front of us are problems that are fun and exciting and great opportunities for us and our organization and the world. Sometimes the problems are ones that we didn't wish for and we have to deal with and figure out the best way to solve them. Regardless of how the problems come to us, we need a framework for how to handle it well, how to come to the right solution, and probably most importantly, how to engage people to come along with us in assisting with resolving that problem. And that's why today's guest uh, is going to be a really important person for us to learn from because uh, she's not only thought about a lot of problems, has worked with a lot of organizations to help them, and has developed a framework that I know is going to be helpful to us. And today's guest is Teresa Shaheen. She is the Social Entrepreneurship Program Leader at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Innovation Advisor at Alphanar Venture Philanthropy. She is also the author of Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship, a 12-step guide to building an impactful venture. Teresa, I'm so glad to have you here on Coaching for Leaders. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the pleasure is mine, and I can't wait to get into talking about how to solve tough problems. You've done this a ton. You've helped organizations do this well. You've helped social entrepreneurs to do this well. Um, But before we get into the details, I I think one of the things that our audience may be curious about is social entrepreneurship. It's a term that a lot of us have heard, but I think we all have varying levels of understanding about what social entrepreneurship is. And I'm wondering if you could teach us a bit about what it is. Sure. So it's basically applying entrepreneurial approaches to tackling social challenges. A social entrepreneur is someone who develops and implements a product or service that solves a social problem in a way that's effective, sustainable, and potentially replicable or scalable. And so my work has been supporting social entrepreneurs primarily in Lebanon and Egypt, but also globally in thinking about how they can refine their social impact models and re- increase their cost recovery and their revenue generating. The, the unique thing about social entrepreneurship is that revenue becomes a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. And the social impact is the bottom line. Oh, say more about that. How is that different than how traditional entrepreneurs may approach something? So traditional entrepreneurs are oftentimes also just out there to change the world. I mean, most entrepreneurship is social in the sense that you're pushing society forward and you're creating jobs and you're building the economy. So I get that question a lot. Like, what's the difference? Isn't all entrepreneurship social? 
The answer is yes. With a few exceptions, most entrepreneurship is social. The reason why we spend so much time and thought thinking about social entrepreneurship is that we live in a world where there are still people without access to basic human needs like drinking water and primary education and healthcare. And so it's really trying to reach those marginalized populations and reduce disparities and increase access that social entrepreneurs are after. And that's why it's very similar to any other kind of commercial entrepreneurship, but it's a special subset where you're tackling really sticky challenges. And so it makes it even harder. And that's why I focused my attention there. Well, and that's actually the reason we're talking is because this goes way beyond as a leader, you know, thinking about, okay, how do I give tough feedback to an employee? Or how do I, uh, you know, figure out the right strategy for organization to get a higher open rate on our marketing campaigns? Um, These are really big problems. I don't mean to minimize those other things, by the way, those are tough problems too. And the folks you're working with are really handling big social issues. And so the necessity for them to lead well becomes even more stronger than than would be in a lot of traditional situations. And so one of the things that I'm 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 really interested in that you talk about a lot in your work it, when when social entrepreneurs and leaders are going into these situations and trying to think of how do they solve really tough problems is you've used the term co-creation to describe the mm-hmm. mindset that leaders need in order to approach some of the problems. Can you yeah. can you tell us about that and why is co-creation so important? Definitely. So I'm going to tell you all about co-creation, but first I'm, I'm going to speak to something you said earlier, a, a few seconds ago, about not minimizing other problems. And really the, the thing that I've learned is that any type of situation, even if it's just a daily situation that a leader finds themselves in, we can apply the skills and frameworks where you're tackling a bigger picture problem to solving the smallest of situations. And I think that that's that's really why social entrepreneurship and solving sticky challenges applies to everyday work in leadership and management. And it's because it's important to unpack problems. And that's really what co-creation does. It's about unpacking problems, working with people affected by the problem, and also getting to the root causes of the problem. So one thing that makes social entrepreneurship unique is that you don't start with a solution. It's not like you have a product like an app or a drone or whatever that you're thinking about, okay, what's the market for my product? No, it's the other way around. You're starting with the problem. And so it's important before you even start designing the solution to understand the problem and think about why it's still there. Why has it persisted over time? Who has tried tackling this challenge before? Because you're obviously not the first person. And what has worked and what hasn't? So one mistake that leaders make is often reinventing the wheel and thinking that the situation that they're in is unique. It's statistically unlikely to be the fact that you're the first person that has found yourself in this situation. And so it's really helpful to learn more about how others have experienced this in the past and how they've dealt with it. So that whatever solution you create, you're building on the work of others rather than starting from scratch. And co-creation is a huge part of that. So co-creation basically means working together with the people impacted by the problem. In an office setting, it means that a manager doesn't come up with solutions top down, but rather sits down with her team thinking about what's the challenge, why does it exist today, and how are you interacting with it, and how might you interact with the solution. 
out in the field, the social entrepreneur is working with people who, for example, don't have access to clean drinking water or education or health and thinking about why, what are the upstream factors and how can we create something together rather than thinking of something all on your own in the ivory tower? Does that make sense? It does. So it's the leader and their their team really going out and talking to the people who it's going to impact, whether it's the organization, whether it's the community, and really having conversations to understand that and listening well. Um, I think if I'm hearing you right, and, and, and uh, Teresa, as you were saying this, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, there to the point you were making about you know we're not really that unique i get emails every single week from listeners of the show who will email <laughs> me and will say something like how did you know this was exactly what i needed to hear this week <laughs> and and it's sort of funny when i get the email because i think to myself like it, because i got the same question five or six other times in the last few months and that's why we did a show on it because i'm creating content for the shows around what are the questions i'm getting so it's a, it's a perfect example of your point of if you are going to create something in your own mind that's a really different process than if you're creating something by being in partnership and co-creating and listening to the people around you that you're serving. I keep using a really important word, which is listening. I think that listening is a huge attribute of leadership and it can't be emphasized enough. I really think a great leader is one who listens and not only listens and has conversations, but really immerses oneself in the problem and lives it. So you have to make it your problem too. You have to feel the pain of those living this problem. And it's more than empathizing. It's really about self-immersion. And so that's really what co-creation is about. Another aspect of co-creation is thinking about who are the entrepreneurs and leaders in the population experiencing this challenge. So whether it's a community you're working with or your team at work or your customers, there must be some solutions already arising in there from that because people are creative and they are entrepreneurial. And so someone's got to be coming up with solutions. There must be other alternatives to how people are experiencing this challenge and, and finding those local entrepreneurs and leaders and building solutions around and with them is another key element of co-creation. So a lot of partnership here. And I think one of the things I'm hearing you say is when you hear when you're faced with a problem in your organization or with a customer or supplier or whatever, whatever the situation is, is that there's going to be solutions there already. So go looking for what people are already doing to try and work around the problem. And chances are there's someone within your organization already or a customer that's already found a, a possible path forward. Yeah. And that goes back to what we were saying before about not reinventing the wheel. So a third thing, in addition to listening and immersing yourself, identifying existing solutions um, and entrepreneurs in the, you know, the skills required for co-creation is understanding the root causes. And that really speaks to unpacking a problem. There's an, a really cool video out there on YouTube by Matt Anderson at the Harvard Kennedy School where he talks about deconstructing sticky challenges and breaking them down into their parts to better understand why we find ourselves in this situation. And that's called root cause analysis. So there's always upstream factors leading to the situation you find yourself in. And you might not always be able to address the root causes, but you want to at least try to understand what they are and why they're there so that whatever solution you create 
is more likely to be effective and long-lasting rather than a Band-Aid. You had passed along an article to me, I think it was in Harvard Business Review, around an example of solving a problem with people being frustrated that elevator wait times took too long and getting to yeah. like the root issue. <laughs> uh, would you share that with us? Because I think that that really kind of illustrates the point. I was just flipping through the Harvard Business Review the other day, and there was this article about defining the problem. So before you even go about solving it, making sure you understand what is the nature of the problem here. And they used an example about an elevator that people were frustrated that it was slow. And they started trying to design a solution like, okay, let's think of different ways to make the elevator faster. What they realized at the, in the end is that the problem was not that people weren't getting from point A to point B fast enough. It's just that they felt bored and frustrated waiting for the elevator. So they just tried to make the elevator wait more pleasant. They fixed the surroundings, they fixed the music, they made it more interactive, and people were no longer frustrated. And they solved the problem in a way that was so much more accessible and inexpensive and really addressed the aspect of the problem that was upsetting people. Yeah, exactly. I, I love one of the things they did in that example is uh, put up mirrors in the elevator lobby so people would <laughs> check out their hair. Right, and distracted, <laughs> their <laughs> All of a sudden, a very interesting topic, right? Me. <laughs> and let me. Oh, the elevator's here. Thanks. <laughs> and the problems went away. Oops, I just missed the elevator. It came and went. <laughs> well, it's such, a, it's such an interesting way to frame because, it, again, it's not the traditional way to think about how you solve a problem. It's looking at kind of more the root cause of the problem and thinking about how do you engineer around that and really do something that maybe is a lot easier than trying to do the things that are very apparent when you start thinking about how to frame the problem. So I'm curious, in your work with leaders who are handling some of these really big problems, what's maybe an example of a time you've seen someone um, really handle that well and proactively and really approach this from a co-creation mindset? That's a really good question, actually. I'm going to give an example um, from a refugee camp I work with in Lebanon. So we work with this community-based organization called the Women's Program Association, and they're located in Birzul Barajna refugee camp in Beirut. And so we wanted to ask them, they approached us in terms of Al-Fanar is a venture philanthropy organization. We provide seed funding to social enterprises. And they approached us to ask whether we might be interested in investing in them. So we went to visit to find out what kind of potential ventures do they have. And they had surveyed the community, the women they serve, to find out what kind of work the women might be interested in because they wanted to do something that would help women work and generate income to support their families and really be economically productive members of society. And so it turned out that the women were really interested in working in the food industry because food is something that they already interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. They and need to feed their families anyway, would like to learn better skills. And in a challenging economic and political environment, everyone needs to eat. So the low-cost food industry will always work. And so we seeded this catering company, and um, and we they went through this entire training about how to make healthy food, how to make it safe, how to confine to industrial standards. And it was so moving to see them create their own menu think about reviving their heritage through their food and coming up with things that they had left behind in their country. 
And when we got it all up and running, the challenge was that they weren't getting enough orders. And there were so many assumptions behind that challenge. And I think it's a challenge that many management and leadership teams find today. Like, how can we expand our market? So we didn't know how to go about tackling that challenge. And the social entrepreneur we were working with, the chief executive of this organization, basically had to start by unpackaging the problem. Is it that people aren't finding out about us? Is it that we're not getting out from the refugee camp enough? Or is it that they have social taboos about ordering food from a refugee camp because they don't know what it's like? Are the women hesitating? Are they having social challenges? Are their families holding them back from working? So in this case, we really had to work with the women in the catering company and have a dialogue with potential customers to figure out what is causing, what is the challenge behind the, the lack of orders? And it turned out to be a little bit of all the above in the sense that people did have social taboos about what it means to order food from a bunch of refugees. The women themselves did also feel hesitant to go out there to the city and interact with others because they're aware of these social challenges. And also people hadn't found out enough about us. So it wasn't any one thing, but it was really a combination of things that through talking to the women and the customers, she was able to find out more about and design solutions towards. So the solution that we created was then, as a result, multifaceted, just like the problem itself. So we engaged with a partner who had won an, an award, a social enterprise called Su'itayyib, which had won awards and been recognized worldwide for its quality. And they featured and highlighted these women in their restaurant, which is called Taule, which means table in Arabic. And they helped us with our logo and our design and marketing. And then we trained the women on customer service, on interacting with others. They participated in the farmer's market organized by this famous social entrepreneur that we partnered with. And we started doing fun, creative things like meeting with customers and doing samplings and everything in order to create awareness and make people fall in love with this product that these women were creating that they felt so passionate about. And last but not least, one thing we came up with through this co-creation process, and it was months later, was that it would be fun to do a food truck, which was such an innovative idea that this social entrepreneur would have never ever thought of by herself. She never even knew that food trucks existed. But by really getting out there and talking to the community, it was suggested we did a Kickstarter campaign and people from all around the world, 800 individuals seeded this food truck because they were so excited about these women getting out there and getting their product out there in the world. And so right now we actually have a social justice filmmaker making a feature length documentary film about called Sufra, which means feast, about these women and their food truck and all the challenges that they've had oh, in getting wow. their product out there in the world. And the executive producer is Susan Sarandon. So I'm really excited to share it with you and your listeners. And I want you guys to keep your eyes out for it because it's going to be released in 2017. And it's basically just that openness to the process of co-creation has led to so many different outcomes that the social entrepreneur would have never dreamed of. It's been an incredible journey to witness and be part of. Well, and I think that is such a great story. And I think that sometimes people miss some of the key pieces of that when they hear about a successful venture, successful organization. It's like, oh, you know, they were lucky or they did, you know, there was just, it's time for that. But some of the key things you said in that answer was, 
They surveyed people at the beginning. They went into partnership. They did. They went out in the community. They did taste testing. There was so much there of what you you know the co creation process of really asking, dialoguing, have relationships, and that actually leads to one of the other things that I know that you say is really important for leaders, especially if they're solving a really big problem, which is being a connector. And I'm wondering yeah. if you can tell us more about what does it mean to be a connector, and and maybe what are some ways that you've seen people do that well. So like you said, in in this example, it was really the process. It's not that someone just thought of an idea like, hey, I want to do food truck. That that would have never worked. It's just that she started with the problem and went through this co-creation process that led to this outcome. And so what I mean by a social entrepreneur as a connector is that whatever solution you're creating, and this applies to all leaders, I I got this word from Malcolm Gladwell, right? You know how he uses the word connector. Mm Mm-hmm. I forget in which one of his books it was. I think it was Tipping Point. So he talks about a connector as someone who is just that type of person that will always find someone to introduce you to or like, hey, why don't you talk to this person? Why don't you look into that opportunity? Just mobilizing resources rather than being an inventor. People often think that entrepreneurs and leaders need to invent solutions, but it's more about looking at what resources are already there and putting them together. So when a social entrepreneur goes into a new context or wants to serve a new community, the reason I encourage them to think of themselves as connectors is because I think that they need to work with existing resources and characteristics and solutions in that community and just help mobilize existing pieces of the puzzle. So you're really like an enzyme that's catalyzing a solution with the existing ingredients. Otherwise, It's just that if you want to start from something new or introduce something from the outside or come up with your own idea by yourself, it's not likely to stick. I think that you have to work with what you already have and just think of yourself as someone who's piecing together existing pieces of the puzzle. Does that resonate with you? It does. And speaking of putting the pieces together, I know one of the key elements that's important for leaders to think of when they are trying to solve a problem or create something new is, and you talk about this in your book a bunch, which is stakeholder analysis. Yeah. T- tell us about that and and what's involved. Because I, I think those are terms, by the way, that sometimes I have frightened me in the past, like stakeholder analysis. Like that sounds like a really big buzzword. <laughs> like, what does that mean? What do I actually do with it? Tell, teach us how to do that in a way that it's kind of like the basics of what we need to know about that. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about any crazy tools and templates. If people want to get really nerdy, they can look them up either in the book or online. They're all over the place. But just taking it back down to the basic elements, first let's start with the words so that it will be really intuitive to everyone listening in today. What is stakeholder analysis? Well, first of all, a stakeholder is it's, it's kind of self-explanatory in the sense that it's anyone who has a stake in this issue, anyone who feels that they have something either to gain or to lose in seeing a, you know, a new equilibrium and in seeing the status quo change. And so that could speak to office politics, it could speak to working in a rural village, to empowering women economically, et cetera. And then the analysis just speaks to thinking about who are your stakeholders? So who has something to gain or lose if this, if you create change? 
how do you want them to be, how might they interact with this process? Are they going to resist you? Could they be potential partners to help you? So it's really mapping everyone that's affected by this challenge. And that's part of the co-creation process. Who are going to be your allies? Who are going to be providing resistance? In order to know what you're getting into when you go in there and not have any surprises. So it's about thinking, I mean, you can even start with just making a basic list of who the stakeholders are, what their current scenario is, and where you want them, where they need to be in order for the solution to work. So you might identify someone that resists it and be like, okay, that's fine for them to resist this. I can work without them. More often than not, you're going to be you're going to find yourself realizing I need to get this group's buy-in. They might not ever become my biggest allies or partners, but I need them to at least not be resisting it. And so how do I go about doing that? Another thing you might find from stakeholder analysis is like, wow, this group, I'm, I might have thought of them as competitors or resistors, but actually they could be the greatest allies and collaborators. So that might help you identify partnerships. I'm glad you mentioned that you know people don't necessarily have to be your biggest fans, but they may you may need to do enough to have them not be the obstacles in the way. And I, yeah. my sense is, I'm curious what your experience is, Teresa, is that a lot of leaders, organizations, when they're trying to make a big change or solve a problem, is there's a tendency to sometimes downplay the losers of you know this person's going to potentially lose in the situation. This person's going to be an obstacle. It's like, well, you know, we'll deal with that, or you know, it's not going to be an issue but not really thinking about that as proactively as sometimes we like to think about the supporters, which are, of course, the easier people to talk to. That's have you run into that point. too? I can't say that I have, but I think that you make a really good point in the sense that it's so much, it's probably as important, if not more, to think about who has something to lose uh, than who has something to gain. Actually, I have run into that. I'm going to stick with the same example. So thinking about creating a social enterprise to empower women in Lebanon. So you're working in the Arab world, you're working in a refugee camp. These women don't live in a vacuum. They live in a society where a lot of them has been, I hate to use the word, but almost brainwashed to think that they cannot and should not be economically productive members of society. So what happens when you change something so basic in society? There are a lot of people that might get disgruntled. So we worried a lot about the men and their families, because this is a patriarchal society and about getting buy-in from those men in terms of, are you okay with your wives and your daughters and your sisters getting out there, leaving the refugee camp, working, spending less time at home? And we thought about what we would do if we found resistance, uh, how could we get buy-in and what implications that would have on our business. As it turns out, it was actually more positive effects than not, because these women were now becoming pillars of society, supporting their families. Um, just, it was really changing everything in a positive way. But we had to be prepared for what would happen if we had resistance, right? Like that had to be part of our strategy in terms of risk mitigation and obtaining buy-in. And I think the fact that we thought about that while designing the venture was probably a huge reason why we got less resistance than we were worried yeah, indeed, indeed. And I've, I've heard of others who have worked in organizations doing similar things. And, and in fact, sometimes those are the very things that run into that cause major issues with trying to solve a big problem is not having thought clearly enough. And sometimes the obvious things are the things that are missed. So that's where, you know, having a 
a group of people come together and doing the co-creation process like you were talking about and connecting with people really uncovers those things pretty quickly. The things that you may miss as a leader or your organization may even miss if you're serving another population. Right. And I think that any leader needs to think about this because when you're a leader, you're creating change, right? Like that's what you're usually leading is that you're challenging the status quo. You're questioning assumptions. There's something about the equilibrium that exists today that you don't like and that you're setting out to change. And so there's always going to be someone who doesn't like it and who has something to lose. And the question is, how can you make them feel like they're part of this change at least so that they don't feel that it's something that's being imposed on them and that they're going to try to sabotage in any way that they can. Or at least how can you get as many stakeholders on your side as possible because strength is in numbers. And one thing social entrepreneurs always tell me, they realize through their experience is that you can't do it alone. Whatever change you're trying to create, you cannot do it alone. So that's something really important for all leaders to keep in mind, I think. Oh, I'm glad you said that. I've uh, I've taught classes on change in the past, and uh, folks are supposed to, one of the things they would have to do during the classes, submit a paper on you know what was the change process they were going to use. And any paper that came in with lots of pronouns that said, I, I, I'm going to do this, I would almost immediately hand back and say, so you're missing a key mental yeah. framework of this, which yeah. is if it's about you, it's dead on arrival, um, whatever change exactly. you're trying to do. Exactly. It can't be about you. It has to be about the stakeholders. Exactly. You said it. Yeah. Grammar can tell us a lot. <laughs> oh, it's so interesting. Like reading between the lines, of, not even reading between the lines sometimes, but just the the framework the grammar, the words people use is so telling in how they're approaching the world and the mindset that they have. And and speaking of mindset, I I know one of the a key step in this in, in creating the right mindset and resolving a problem is doing research. And that's one of the things you talk about a bunch. I think this is another one of those terms that probably a lot of leaders kind of may bristle at, especially those who don't have experience yeah. doing research and like, okay, oh, I gotta do research. Like, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> how do you how do you define what that looks like and 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 why it's valuable to do? So I actually feel with people who bristle at the word research because I was like that too. And that's something that I've noticed changed in myself over the past 15 years, you could say, is that I, I've always been the type of person that's so eager to take action that I'm just like, oh my God, research? Are you kidding me? That's the last thing we need. We need action. Like, let's just get started. Enough with this research. It's a waste of time. But I realized that actually you save so much time by doing your research first and that can that can get you to where you want to go much faster because it helps you decide where you want to allocate resources it helps you figure out whether what you're about to try has been tried before and hasn't worked and why and so research can look like a bunch of different things. For example, if you're trying to create a social product or service, like let's say a solar powered system for an off the grid community, for example, research can look like a lot of different things. So first you can do an, a lot of online research in terms of resources, competitors, et cetera. You can do in-person research in terms of co-creation and stakeholder analysis and all those things. They are part of the research. And you can do research in the sense of collecting your own data, like testing things out. 
So something we use a lot in entrepreneurship, we talk about the lean startup and the art of failing fast. And that is a form of research. It's about really applying the scientific method. I'm trained as a basic scientist, so this really resonates with me. You remember the scientific method from, you know, elementary school, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You think of hypothesis, you test it out, you get data, et cetera. So social entrepreneurship is applying the scientific method to solving social problems. So when you have a hypothesis about why your solution is going to change this situation, you need to test it out and collect data about that in a way that is not too expensive and does not take too much time. And that can simply mean creating a prototype or minimal viable product and testing it out and getting feedback from the end users and others and seeing what's feasible and just iterating it really fast until you have a stronger solution. And so a prototype, if you're talking about, you know, solar powered, it could be a cheap prototype of your end solution. Or if you're talking about a service rather than a product, it could be like a mock-up, you know, like diagrams or um, testing things out in person, role-playing, et cetera, just to get feedback and data about whether this is feasible and how it can be approved. It's exactly what I did with the Coaching for Leaders Academy when it started off, uh, Teresa. Did you? Oh, my goodness. Yep. Yep. We started with a very simple process. We charged a very small amount for it, and it got better as time went on. And and in fact, you know, one of the things to the point you're making here, and I hear about a lot in leadership and product creation and entrepreneurial circles too, is that if you are going out and doing research and you're not finding that other people, you're not finding solutions and you're not finding other people who are struggling with the same things, that that should kind of be a warning sign <laughs> versus sometimes people, you yeah. know, they go out there and like, oh, no one else is doing this. No one else has come up with this solution. If yeah. if truly no one else has come up with a solution or is struggling with this, that should probably be more of a warning sign than an opportunity because, you know, to your yeah. point earlier, <laughs> you're not alone. There's other people dealing with this. And often that's a warning sign that you're not on the right path at all if you're not seeing other other people who are struggling with some of the same things out there when you're doing research. I've had so many students in my classes at Harvard, both at the School of Public Health and at the Extension School where we teach professionals, come up with solutions that, you know, I later on come across that already exist. And I always, you know, hit myself and like, I can't believe the whole semester, I can't believe I let the semester pass without ever even just Googling their solution and seeing if it already exists, you know? And it's okay if something exists, you can be a competitor, but then you at least have to position yourself uniquely, whether geographically or in terms of your value proposition. So it's so important to know what's already out there. And and I what I've learned over time is that research is a form of action. It is taking the first step. It's not, you know, wasting time or procrastinating or putting action off. No, it's making sure that your action is evidence-driven and really based on data. One of the things you write in the book is many leaders fall into the trap of thinking they have the perfect solution and no time is to be wasted in implementing it. Rushing to get the job done (laughs) They assume that once it's complete, everyone will see what a worthy solution it was and will be grateful that it has been done. And <laughs> of course, it rarely <laughs> happens that leaders, way. I probably myself because I'm always that eager person that's like, oh my God, I know what needs to be done. I'm going to go out there and do it and everyone's going to thank me. But I, I really feel like if this is one thing I've learned in leadership and if this is one thing I want our listeners to retain today, it's that the time you invest in getting buy-in even if you really do have the perfect solution, is going to be the most valuable time 
that will result in satisfaction with your solution for a couple of different reasons. The first is that things don't usually go the way that you plan and you're, it never turns out the way that you think it is. So you might, first, you might be wrong that this is the perfect solution. Second, it's more likely going to become something different than what you set out to achieve because that's the way the world works. And so having people being part of the process along the way, and that takes us back to co-creation, is so important because they're more likely to be satisfied with a solution that's less than perfect if they felt that they were part of it than a solution that really is perfect if it was just imposed on them from the outside. They'll always find something to criticize or be unsatisfied about just because you didn't take the time to make them part of the process. Leaders are always growing, and you've worked with a lot of different leaders and supported the success of organizations across lots of cultures. What's something you believe today that you didn't believe or maybe even consider or recognize five years ago? You know, one thing that I've learned, actually, at least on my personal journey, and I'll let you tell me if it will apply to others, is that you think that having control will make you will result in higher quality and usually it turns out to be the other way around so i found in my own work that anytime i try to control the process and the outcome too much out of passion and out of nerdiness and out of a desire to make things just the way i want them the resulting outcome is less satisfactory to everyone including myself when i open it up to others, to that messy co-creation process, because it really is. And when I don't start out with an exact idea in mind of what I want the outcome to be, when I let go of that control a little bit, the outcome is so much more impressive and effective and long-lasting. And so I think that many leaders might start out being like a little bit of a control freak like I started out and that it's such an important leadership skill to open up the process and the outcome to others because once they share your vision and and your pain and and your blood and your sweat and tears then you're going to make something so beautiful together that you could never make alone. Teresa I couldn't have said it better myself amen to all that. Thank you so much for your wisdom on this it's just so helpful of thinking about how Uh, you would approach the situation and how some of the organizations you've worked with have approached these situations. And there's so much here for all of us to take away from as leaders. So folks, of course, can go grab the book, Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship, and I hope they will. And in addition, I know it's great for folks to reach out to you on social media, right? Yes, please do add me on social media. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn. It's my name all in one word, at Teresa Shaheen. And also, please do check out our upcoming movie. It's at foodtruckfilm.com. It's going to be released in a few months. And we hope that you'll get involved and help us create awareness and raise funds to support these social entrepreneurs and others. Thanks, Teresa. We'll have all of those links in the show notes, of course, and this week's Weekly Leadership Guide. Thank you. It's been wonderful chatting.
Thank you, Teresa, and all of the links that we've mentioned in today's conversation, you can find in our show notes or in the weekly leadership guide. You can get access to the weekly leadership guide by activating your free Coaching for Leaders membership. And you can do that by going to coachingforleaders.com. That will get you access to the weekly leadership guide coming to your inbox on Wednesday, which always includes the links to the show, and a bunch of other resources I found during the week that I think will be helpful to you for your ongoing leadership development. It'll also give you access to my free 10-day audio course, 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll start with 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. You can join that by just going to coachingforleaders.com right at the main website there. And you may have heard my announcement over the weekend about a live virtual forum that I am hosting this coming Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday. It is titled The Best of Q1, The Top Lessons from Coaching for Leaders. You can find information and details on the announcement over the weekend and also at this address, Coaching for Leaders dot com slash q1 i am inviting you to join with us to highlight some of the top lessons i found of value from our guests during the first quarter of 2017 and i'm also going to be asking you to join in on the conversation it is going to be very different than a traditional webinar where you just sit back and listen and maybe try to do something else while you're doing it this is going to be an interactive conversation via our zoom platform where you can interact with me live and other participants through live hd video conference i'm going to be sharing my top takeaways from coaching for leaders guests during the first quarter of 2017 I'm also going to introduce you live to three to four other leaders in our global community, and we're going to be sharing dialogue on the best strategies and results for implementing the wisdom we've been learning from our guests. Uh, And even though there'll be a large group participating, our video conference allows us to break into small groups and have uh, intimate discussions, start to build relationships. Uh, It's a fun system. It works everywhere. And if you've got a good internet connection, I hope you'll take a moment to consider joining with us. It's $25 to attend. It's limited to just 100 people. So if you're interested in joining us, visit coachingforleaders.com slash Q1 in order to get all the details and to claim your seat for one of the three events this coming Wednesday Thursday or Friday. And I'm really looking forward to meeting so many of you face-to-face live that I haven't uh, met for the first time. We're going to have a lot of fun. So check that out. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash Q1 is where to go. While you're online, you can also check out some of the past episodes that relate to today's conversation. Episode number 160, Coop Cooper was on with me talking about the five-step strategy for solving problems. We went through the strategy he's articulated. We actually solved a problem that I was uh, dealing with with a client at that time and kind of look through the framework. Uh, If you're looking for a process for how to solve problems, in addition to what we talked about today, episode 160 is a good starting point for you. Uh, You may also want to check out episode number 238, How to Be a Nonconformist. Adam Grant was on that show. He's one of the top professors in the world doing research on human behavior and helping organizations and people to be more successful. He recently wrote a book called Originals. It was a bestseller. And he really debunks a lot of the myths that many of us think about when we think about people starting successful organizations and how to nonconform. You'll find a lot of value in that conversation as well as in the book Originals. That's in episode 238. And finally, on episode 262, Chris Voss joined me to talk about negotiating as if your life depended on it. And he would know something about it because he was the former international hostage negotiator 
for the FBI. We talked about the negotiation tactics he learned in the FBI. More importantly, how those tactics line up with a lot of the wisdom that's come out of Harvard over the years and how he uses it today practically to coach many business and organization leaders on how to negotiate effectively. If you haven't heard that episode, it's really a valuable one. Go to 262 and you can get all access to all of those at coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number, just like every episode. So I hope you'll check that out if that's of value to you. Next week, I am glad to be welcoming to the show Lisa Cummings. Lisa is joining me next week to discuss how to lead through strengths. She is the CEO of a company by the same name, and she also hosts the Lead Through Strengths podcast. It's a very popular show that's getting more and more traction. And one of the things that we talk about in this conversation is if you've ever done Strengths Finder in your workplace, maybe even got a team of people together to do it, you've all shared your results, and then nothing really ever happens with it, we talk about what's the next step. How do you use Strengths Finder and that conversation in the workplace about Strengths Finder in order to really get value for your organization? So check that out next week. Thank you to Brooke Craven and Aria Ghana. I hope I'm saying that right for the kind reviews you left on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to seeing many of you on the live virtual forum this week. Take care. Bye.